You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today's show is all about, well, it's all about Stephen Kotler, who's a friend and a fellow author and actually a chihuahua rancher in one of his lives. But he's well known for writing about flow states, brain states, extreme athletics, and all sorts of other just really interesting, well-crafted stories. And his new book is called NAR, Growing Old, Staying Rad. And uh, Stephen and I have been friends for what, 10 years now? Yeah, I think that's about right. Yep. And at the very, actually at the second biohacking conference when I was starting this this movement, uh, they brought some giant toys, including a, a upside down swing that catapulted someone through the air onto a vendor's table. True story. Uh, and not before hitting a woman in the head, then onto well, the vendor's table. Okay, that, that's a fair point. It was one of those things like like a strike in bowling where you get all of the pins at the same time. <laughs> it's true. And the good news is is that no no one was injured, which is why we can <laughs> joke about it. Everyone was okay. Um, so anyway, we, we go way back. I've made him scream at two in the morning in hotel rooms with the electrical stimulation. True and story. What I the reason I wanted Stephen on here is in addition to just being an interesting, fun human to talk to. Uh, is that his new book? And guys, if you haven't read one of Stephen's books, like he, he's a great freaking writer. Like the storyline in these, it it's uh, like you were even nominated, I think, for a Pulitzer for one of them, right? Two, two Pulitzers. O- only, only two. But Sorry. did you win? No, I haven't won. So yeah, no. I know. I, it's just I know. Kinda, you know, loser. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, these are these are works. But this episode is about testing your limits and challenging yourself as you age. And as you guys know, part of biohacking is longevity, radical longevity. And part of it is cognitive performance and doing things you're not supposed to be able to do when you're 16 or 25. And it turns out if you do those right, you probably won't age as much anyway. Um, One of the things that happens as normal humans age is they start putting in all these limitations and challenging beliefs and things like that. And some of that's hardwired, doesn't mean you can't hack it, but it's hardwired. And some of it's really more software-based. So Stephen's book is literally about that. It's what happens in your brain in the second half of your life. And by the way, fuck you. That's the second three quarters of my life because I I may have turned 27.7% recently. But but yeah, Peter, my good friend Peter D. Mandis, of course, does the exact same thing and feels the exact same way as it was Ray Kurzweil. yeah. yeah. Um, and, and by the way, by the way, I, all I have to say is, you know, the only point I make about all that side of this equation is most of us are going to be old, whatever the hell that means, right? For a lot longer than our ancestors and probably a lot longer than we suspect. That I, like, is that, you know, that we can all agree on. So. Okay. We totally agree on that. And uh, bottom line is, if you want to call it second half, second, whatever, uh, things do change over time. You can control how they change to a way greater extent than most people believe. Uh, but uh, we do know things about synaptic pruning and all. And you go through in the book and you do the things you write about. And uh, we talk, or you talk in the book, and we are going to talk about some outdated beliefs about aging that 
we kind of got started a long time ago and we just never fixed them. You know, what I call the traditional theory about aging, let's start here, is uh, what I call the long, slow rot theory, right? It's the idea that our mental and physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And it actually starts with Freud. 19, I want to say it's 1903, it could be 1908. Freud is about to be 50 years old. He's terrified of getting older. And he writes that don't even try psychotherapy with anybody over the age of 50. They can't learn anything anymore. You're wasting your time. So literally, and he's not even 50 yet. And then what's hysterical about it is Freud goes on to write three or four of his most famous works in his 60s. Will you indulge me for a second and imagine who you would be if you actually had more energy, if your brain fired faster and you could measure it, and you had a calmer nervous system that worked better? That's what this show, that's what my work is all about. You can be that person with a few fixes that really work. In my brand new book, Smarter Not Harder, I will teach you about the little things that make the biggest difference in your life so you can be that person. There's a new anti-nutrient that you haven't heard about yet that is weakening everything you do from your workouts to your meditations. You can remove it from your diet and you'll notice a shift quickly. Learn how to get the right amount of exercise for you in the very least amount of time and it's way less than you think. Smarter Not Harder is about simplicity and efficiency so you have more time to work on the things that matter to you. You can use the time to work on yourself or to help other people, but it's time that's yours that you're not using effectively right now. If you want to get your energy back like I did, you want to manage the stress so you can handle anything, maybe even drop the weight, check out Smarter Not Harder wherever you buy books. This is stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. Smarter Not Harder, thank you for your support. What's hysterical about it is Freud goes on to write three or four of his most famous works in his 60s, right? So like it's not even true for Freud, but that statement has remained with us. If you want to have the craziest experience you can have, go back to Harry Truman's founding statement in 1950 for the Social Security Administration. They had to send out a document basically to everybody invited to the meeting. And the document basically says, by the way, old people turns out are people too. They have all the same feelings and desires that you do. It's it's a crazy document. And you know, this wow. persists into the nineties, which is the nineteen nineties, which is when it starts to wobble. Um and what we have since learned has replaced it, and this is almost true across the boards. There are there are obviously things that change as we age, but all the stuff we used to think declined over time, and you alluded to this, we now know it's all use it or lose it skills. And if you never stop training these skills, we can hold on to them and even actually expand them much later in life than anybody thought possible. I, I think I just heard you say old people are lazy. Is that what you just said, Stephen? I want to say that I think most people are dead before they're <laughs> dead. That's 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 how I, that's how I've and been it, putting it. It's it's not laziness. It, like you said, you stopped using it. And why you did that? Um, well, hey, that's my next book topic. Said Mother Nature's wired you to do that. Doesn't mean you can't change it. But the idea of, of not doing things you don't have to do that's kind of built in as conservation of energy. And so there's no moral problem with that. And if you allow that to run things, just like you allow your hunger to make you eat uh, cheeseburgers all the time, 
And although actually cheeseburgers are probably better than Pop-Tarts, come to think of it. So if you allow your hunger to make you eat vegan burgers all the time, that's just true junk food. Uh, and if you know you, you you stay up all night, you never sleep, and you just don't take care of yourself because you're just being lazy about self-care, um, then you probably are going to be lazy when you're older. But if you do a little bit of self-care ahead of time uh, and you keep pushing yourself and build those habits that you talk about, you might be dangerous. And the way you open up the book is awesome. <laughs> it's to do a dangerous thing with style is what I call art. Like I, do, I make danger coffee. Okay. I'm all about being dangerous. I mean, who knows what I might do? I can do whatever I want and you might not like it, but I have the power. And I, I love that, that quote. Why did you pick that quote by Charles Bukowski? Uh, well, the book, the book is a, experiment in peak performance aging, right? The idea underneath the book is, as you sort of pointed out, the old idea, right? Long, slow rot theory is can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I was doing a ton of work in, in flow science, right? My core field in network neuroscience, which, you know, neural dynamics directly, that's how we approach flow anyways, yeah. and embodied cognition. And I'm learning and learning. And this is 20 years of work. And all of it says, hey, wait a minute. If you apply these ideas, um, you should be able to like really learn difficult physical challenge activities very late in life. And so I decided to try to teach myself how to park ski. Park skiing is the discipline in skiing that involves jumps, doing tricks off jumps and on rails and boxes and wall rides, very acrobatic. It's very dangerous. And the general thinking is you haven't learned it by 35. Don't bother, right? It's very, very difficult. Over 40 or 50, it becomes downright impossible. And so, of course, I tried to get good uh, in, in my 50s. But it's a, action sports are about creative self-expression on the mountain. It's, you know, most action sport athletes, especially in the generation that I came up with, thought of themselves as artists as much as they thought of themselves as athletes. Yeah. So, um, and and for sure, my, my approach to skiing has always been, right, and skiers use the word steezy. It's a blend of stylish and easy. It's the ultimate, right? In action mm -hmm. sports, you want to be steezy. You want to be really, really stylish, but don't look like you're expending a whole lot of effort doing it. And, you know, to do a dangerous thing with style is what I call art, as Bukowski said. It, I think in his case, he was talking about drinking bourbon, but he did it with a lot of style. There's a corollary to the early days of computer hacking. So back in the 90s, when you were figuring all this stuff out, I was a cyberpunk, you know, mirrored shades, uh, leather jacket, and breaking into systems that you're not supposed to break into. But the idea of making it look easy and, and you know, taking over someone else's system in a way that's creative, and I'm just going to say stylish, according to the hacker ethos, it's the same thing. It, it's this idea that you did it with beauty, like an Olympic diver going into the water with yeah. no splash. Like, how did that happen? It's the effortlessness. I want aging to look like that for me and for everyone, to be perfectly honest. And you're working on that too. Although, I have to ask you this. I wasn't planning on doing it here in the interview, but we're friends. Okay. I talked about you screaming at 2 a.m. in a hotel room. Remember yeah. that? Okay. So what happened is... You screwed up your shoulder doing some sort of ridiculous skiing into a tree or something. I don't remember what caused the injury, but it was hurting for nine months, right? I think it was a rotator cuff. Um, it was. 
So, so I, I took my crazy Russian prototype electrical stimulation device and I slapped it on there and I had you do the motion while I was putting you under an insane load, way more than your body would ever think was, was rational and showed your body it could do the movement and magically it stopped hurting. And the next morning, you're like, oh my God, I have full range of motion. Like what happened? But you did scream because that was the body going, I'm not going to do it. And you saying, actually, you are going to do it. And and it, it was fixed. But you had pain for nine months because you do crazy stuff, Stephen. Like, like I mean, I don't care if you're 20 or if you're 50, doing your triple flips on, on skis, getting traumatic so brain a, injuries. It's, it's like, a fair are, point. Yeah. Are you so, getting a wall well, But you, let's, let me back up and, and talk about one thing, and then, I'll, okay. then I'm going to answer that question. We took this idea, you know, and I, I, I used this, this sort of methodology uh, to try to teach myself out of parks. I literally said, a, I said, if it takes five years, and we could talk about why I was doing that. It actually all, that, a lot of that grew out of a conversation I had with me, I took something high, and the last conversation I ever had with him before he passed away. But uh, I was like, I was going to learn. It doesn't care how long it took. And I created a list of 20 tricks and I figured if it took me five years, whatever, great, fantastic. I did it in a season, which shocked me. Now my ski partner, who is 20 years younger um, and a former actual sponsored athlete had, who had had a terrible injury and came back to the sport at the same time I started to learn it, he was using the same methodology. He got incredibly far. That was cool. But as you know, that's like the world's smallest pilot study, right? There's two people. But this past winter, we took the same methodology. We took 17 uh, older adults ages 30 to 68 and in four sessions on the mountain, again, taught them how to park ski. The goal wasn't actually to teach them how to do tricks. We broke, we break park skiing into the eight foundational motions. And the goal was to get them to be able to creatively interpret terrain features as a Wow. Faster pass into flow. The flow takes care of the progression and the trips trick and all that, right? And mm -hmm. so it's a, like a one inch at a time, go slow to go fast, just teaching people how to creatively interpret the mountain because creativity, that pattern recognition is a flow trigger. And that's, that's what I did. That was the goal. And uh, if you actually go to the webpage for the book, which is www.narcountry.com, you'll see there's a tab that says Peak Performance Aging Experiment. You can click it and watch the video. We made a huge video about the experiment. You can read the white paper. So you, while you are right, and I am crazy, and I do am more than willing to hurt myself in the name of research, and, and I don't, like you're totally right. Um, you, yeah, you both, that's what way. I was going to say. Is that's both of us? Um, that is both of us. Uh, we like, uh, you know. The, uh, but I always say, like, well, first rule for Stephen is, if it works for me, it's probably not going to work for you, right? I come. The reason I'm uninterested in psychology has always been it's squishy, it's subjective, and what works for you is not going to work for me because of a lot of reasons how personality gets set up, connections to genetics and early childhood experience. But if you can get to the level of neurobiology evolution shapes that is shared by all humans and that will work for everybody. So that was the approach we took here. And so far, and we obviously, uh, two, we, we then took it out of action sports and ran like 500 subjects through the protocol and got, uh, really big, uh, performance improvements in their lives as well in, you know, the latter half of their lives. So we've got a lot of confidence that it, that it works outside of me, but yeah, I am willing to do, I, I am willing to, bang myself up a little bit in the name of research. <laughs> Got it. And I, I don't know that's the best anti-aging path. 
Because what often happens with just normal humans who aren't wired the way you and me are is that uh, you know you do something, you you get an injury, and it stops you from exercising, and then you get frail hips and you get sarcopenia uh, because it's it's hard to heal them. And there's times you can push through it, and there's times when it, it's actually just an injury. And I I kind of wish when I was younger and and going really hard on stuff, even though I was obese and unhealthy. I don't I, I don't think the three knee surgeries I had before I was 23 have served me well as I aged. But you okay so but you know a couple of things. One, yeah. of course they have not served yeah. you well, right? Like I've broken 87 yeah. bones. Like I can tell you what the weather is going to yeah. be, you know, 3 days out, you know what I mean? For sure. <laughs> exactly. That said, and you know this too, and at the end of the book I and I uh, start experimenting with like third generation regenerative medicine, what, what we're, what we have around today. Yep. And while I think there are ridiculously silly claims being made around stem cells and things like that, if you're dealing with tissue injuries, soft tissue, if you're dealing with muscles, tendons, and even some bone stuff, no, regenerative medicine has actually finally grown up. Like it's, it's sort of, it, it's, it works. it works. Finally, like I've been working with it and playing with it and researching it and studying it and writing about it since really the night late nineties. And it wasn't, it was a joke yep. then. And it was a joke even yeah, into cool. like around 2015, it started to get a little bit better. And, you know, in the past mm -hmm. decade, you're looking at like real actual legitimate advancements and the stuff I play with in the book isn't even, you know, and you know this too, it's not even the cutting edge as like I was writing about the stuff in the book, a friend of mine, blows out her ACL, they take stem cells out of her hip, spin them like they're going to PRP the stem cells and, yeah, right, and, and, yeah. and shoot it back and regrow her ACL in five months and she's skiing again. And this is a top-level skier. So top athletes mm -hmm. used to be a year, like two years ago, three years ago, your OBJ playing football, it's a year and a half recovery from that same problem. And now she's back skiing at a like top-level after five months, that's crazy, crazy progress. And as you know, the stuff is starting to get democratized. So cost is coming down. You're, you know, in America, like yep. my mom just had PRP and her insurance covered it. Now PRP is not cutting edge. It's like where the field was five, six years ago, but, or eight years ago, it but works. it works and yeah. her insurance is now covering it. Right. So like, uh, that's, uh, that's getting interesting on that front. But uh, I, the other the point I want to make on all this, because you've touched on it a couple of times, and I want to just go back and hit it, because it's certainly, I, I've certainly come up with some of that. I commented how many times. You can rock till you drop pretty much. But one of the clearest yep. things that we see is peak performance aging starts young. The Biohacking Wonderland is a 65,000 square foot tech hall with over 100 tools and toys all approved by me and my team. It's the biggest collection of biohacking tech in the world, and there's going to be something there for you that can help you upgrade what you're working on. You'll also get to hear from leaders at the front of health and wellness and human potential, and you're going to make unforgettable memories because you get to spend quality time with people like you. That's the best thing about the conference, the smiles, the glowing eyes, and the people who just care about things a little differently. Go to biohackingconference.com Get your ticket now. It will sell out like it did last year.
you can rock till you drop pretty much. But one of the clearest yep. things that we see is peak performance aging starts young. I mean, you, if you can, right, you can make interventions in your 60s and 70s and 80s, and they're going to work and you're going to get results. But it, like there, when we, in our research, we found stuff, there's dietary stuff that they think starts to matter in your 20s. And um, certainly from an adult development. So one of the things this is covered in the book, um, and I'm just going to say it now because I know you were going to go there, but I'm, I'm going to spare you the, the, the pain. Um, Do it. So Gene Cohn, who is one of the pioneers of peak performance aging, has sort of invented the field of geriatric psychiatry, which wasn't a field until he came along, literally because we didn't think old people like were psychologically treatable, right? Like Freud said no, and it took until mm -hmm. 1973 when Gene Cohn comes along. He's the first guy to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't true. Let's run some experiments and see. Anyways, he discovers that rather than like an inevitable cognitive decline, because of a bunch of different neurobiological changes, if we get it right, and we're going to come back to what that it is, because that was the point I was going to make. Mm -hmm. In our 50s, <clears throat> we gain access to like whole new thinking styles, right? New levels, really yep. radical new levels of intelligence, new levels of creativity, like, and really deep divergent thinking. The hardest parts of creativity get massively increased in our 50s. Um, and then you get empathy and wisdom. And wisdom Wisdom is the coolest trait in the world because if you want to stave off cognitive decline, fight off Alzheimer's and dementia, you need lifelong expertise and you need lifelong wisdom because they're right. They're big networks in the brain and they're impervious to cognitive decline. Basically, like diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia, they tend to target individual areas. And if you've got these very dispersed mm -hmm. neural nets holding your information, a lot more protected. But what does it mean to get it right? So adult development tells us that if you actually want those superpowers in your 50s, by 30, you have to solve the psychological puzzle of identity. you got to figure out who the hell you are in the world by 30. And yeah. by 40, it's match fit, right? If you can't, if there's not a match between who you are, your values, your beliefs, uh, and how you make a living or spend the bulk of your time, right? If you're not living with passion, purpose, and flow, you got massive problems. And 50s, this is the weird one. This came out of uh, the Harvard Adult Development Study, the 100 Years Study of Adult Development. Mm -hmm. They were the first to notice right. it. In the 50s, you have to forgive those who have done you wrong. Self-forgiveness, you got to like that, sit down, shame yeah. the other, because otherwise you can, the wisdom, the empathy, which is about seeing things from other people's perspectives and all that other stuff, if you can't forgive yourself and forgive other people, that's going to end up blocked. And then in your 50s... The, the thing is, Stephen, you... You can do that in your 20s. Like that's my whole 40 years of Zen thing is about forgiveness. And it, it's just, it's a teachable oh, yeah. skill. Well, I'm working to get you in can high school. You do 40 years of Zen. You can, I mean, you don't even go with that loving kindness meditation, right? It was like yep. Richie yep. Davidson, Madison has Not been like looking at this for 30 years. We have so much data mm -hmm. on compassion meditation. And I don't know if you know this, this is really cool. They tested focus meditation against loving kindness meditation for telomere attrition. And it turns out focus meditation won't protect your telomeres at all. But uh, loving kindness meditation actually prevents telomere attrition, telomere decline for some reason that nobody, nobody can figure out the neural immunology of this quite yet. But it's really interesting. It, it is really interesting. I, I see all kinds of, uh, of markers improve. Uh, when people learn it, I just found it was a lot easier to go all the way in with loving kindness when I have a lie detector telling me when I'm not doing it right. Now, 
I agree. You can do loving kindness all by yourself. I'm just saying, don't wait no, you, till you're they, 50 they, they, to well, master that, this. That's for, that's for damn sure. Um, I, I work with 20-year-olds all the time, or say 20 to 30s, um, not just in neurofeedback, just in, in chatting and talking and sharing stuff. When they get it, it's easier because skill acquisition is kind of easy in your 20s. You can still learn languages. And if you teach people a, a, a provable skill, and it, it's like a handstand, but you're just doing it with your nervous system, man, the upgrading of the future comes from getting high school students and college students to get that loving kindness in. Because in all the shit that we go through in our 20s and 30s, you can, is if you, like a yeah, third. If you can put down a lot of the, there's a lot, there, and I talk about this a lot in the book. There's a lot of, there's a lot of shame yeah. along the way. Um, that you. is, um, that is a tricky one, really, really insidious in terms of what it does to human development and growth and emotional regulation and a whole bunch of stuff like that. So it is. And telomeres and dendrites and cortisol and all the other stuff, too. right? Yeah. And it, and you can set up, you can set up patterns of inflammation in your twenties that are really problematic in your 50s and 60s because most of the most of aging comes down to inflammation i lost my ability to speak the english language there for half a second but you get what i was trying to say (laughs) it it was the pot Uh, so speaking of that you're still as big a fan of cannabis as you were clearly it's i I talk about cannabis in the book it's a it's it's a very it's a very (laughs) so and uh it's a very potent pain reliever and uh good for inflammation Recently, I published a, a, a paper in neuroscience and biobehavioral reviews with a, with three other neuroscientists on the flow state onset, what happens in the brain during the first – as we move into flow. And it's the first uh, paper that has a full detailed look at the endocannabinoid system and the role it plays in flow. So we are getting closer and closer and closer to sort of nudging at the relationship between flow and marijuana, though there's still a ton of work left to get actual real answers. There is. And, and also Daniel Amen's got some pretty interesting looks at blood flow in the brain on cannabis um, that are pretty disturbing. So I, I, I think it's the right, the right strain and the right delivery mechanism for the right biology at the right time to create the right state. Uh, that it's, it's a precise targeting thing. And like you said, we don't have all the science, but it certainly does some good stuff. I want to jump back to something you said earlier, because um, you were right on on something, and, and I, I wanted to layer in a detail. So, one, we were talking. You started talking about mindset at the, at, and aging, and, and, which is you know yeah. one of the topics that's in the book. And the work on mindset and aging is you know is stunning, right? Ellen Langer at Harvard was the mm-hmm. first person sort of through that door, but um, we now there's so many studies that show this. But for example. The, the correlation between longevity and mindset is wild. The Ohio Longitudinal Study of yeah. Retirement and Aging, which is the most thorough look at mindset, is 20 years, a couple thousand people. Um, proper mindset towards aging, which is literally, I believe the second half of my life is filled with interesting possibilities and I'm excited about it. That's the proper mindset. Adds an extra seven and a half years to your life. So that's stunning. The other thing I want to say on this one because uh, it, it sort of dovetails in with the some of the peak performance aging starts young and some of this stuff so that you were talking about when we're younger right the, we all know that that neurochemicals those especially the pleasure chemicals the reward chemicals are addictive super addictive right and when we're younger it's predominantly we're run by the seeking system and the play system those are the biggest drivers and that's predominantly 
dopamine and norepinephrine with a little bit of endorphins. Once right. we get to, and this is where I think the mindset of old, quote unquote, come, actually starts. Once you start to get, like you have the job you want in your, that you go into your thirties or you find the partner you want, or you start to have a family and kids, the neurochemicals you have, we switch our addictions, right? We go from dopamine and norepinephrine, the seeking system to serotonin, oxytocin, and really endorphins. These are all safety and security. These are about protecting what you have, not going out and getting more, right? Those serotonin is the calming chemical. I'm happy with what, with what I have. I'm satisfied. And if you want to really thrive, in the remainder of your days, however many days there are, and according to Dave, there are a lot of days, um, you have to reboot the seeking system and the play system. Um, of Ooh, how do you do that? Literally, you, you literally, I mean, curiosity, passion, purpose, all the things that reproduce dub. I mean, you still want all the other stuff, right? Pre-performance aging sort of demands all of your reward neurochemistry sort of working together. You also have to like get a grip on the reward neurochemistry. You can't let it be quite as addictive as it was uh, in, in your youth a little bit. So there's a little what more. What does that mean? I think it means more emotional regulation um, is what it means. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a classic example. My own mistake in, in, in my NAR country adventure, which is – I started making so much progress, right? I came to park skiing in my fifties. I thought it was, I thought it was a long shot at best. And the, the thing that we designed worked so well, the progress itself was really addictive. I rebooted that sort of seeking desire in a difficult physical activity where I had a little bit of a fixed mindset around it and shifted it. So they had a growth mindset. The progress is really addictive. I wasn't mentally prepared for it, and the addictive progress kept me. I injured myself a little bit on this adventure, but that was it was because I wasn't taking enough recovery days. Like I knew what I should be doing, but like I rebooted the seeking system. It was so pleasurable. I was, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, I wasn't even paying attention. So that's what I mean. Like there's a little bit of emotional regulation that that matters because you know when you're young and you skip recovery days, it's one thing. But it's if you're trying to do this kind of stuff, you know, over 50, um, when it's a little harder to recover, takes a little bit longer, um, then you have to be cautious around that. That's what I mean. How does one really go about doing that? So I, I, I don't understand the problem. I've always had, I don't know, fifth grade curiosity about everything, which gets me into all sorts of trouble, but also makes me creative. Like it, it's a personality attribute or something. Um, but clearly, based on your research and based on what I see, uh, people do lose their curiosity and they lose their zest for life. And I feel like a lot of times we'll just give them some thyroid and some testosterone and magically it comes back well, or address dopamine with L-Depronil and it comes back. But is there something else going on in there? You are not right. You are not wrong. Um, there is there's neurochemical decline over time. And it turns out there's actually a good use for SSRIs, right? Like they're terrible for depression, right? Because they're, they're blunt instruments and they globally raise serotonin levels and that's not how depression really works in the brain. But serotonin levels do drop over time. So it turns out that low-dose SSRIs in people over 75 actually has a huge impact for exactly the same reasons 
You're talking about um, Daniel Levitin. Daniel Levitin writes a lot about this. The neuroscientist yeah. in his book, Successful mm-hmm. Aging. He talks a lot about that. Yep. And in fact, my favorite one, it, L-Depronil. It, it's not even SSRI. It's an MAO inhibitor, but it increases dopamine sensitivity and you use low doses of that. It's a classical anti-aging hack. What L-Depronil? I've never even heard of it. L-Depronil or Selegiline is another name for it. But you use, even when you're younger, you can use one or two drops of it and your dopamine uh, systems just wake up. And as you age, you add one more drop for every 10 years that you take every day. And as long as you're not doing DMT or something, because uh, it'll inhibit that, um, it, is, it is a massively potent uh, brain anti-aging and performance enhancing substance that just gets forgotten about because things get trendy. So we're all about the NAD right now. But honestly, l is cheaper. It works on an entirely different system. But for the kind of stuff we're talking about, it's an antidepressant that you take more of as you age that keeps dopamine sparkly, sparkly. right? And, and that alone would address what you're talking about. I mean, by the way, the, you don't even have like, so Gene Cohn is the one who started figuring this out. He figured out that in our 50s, there's another gateway to adult development, which is creativity. So while we get creativity and intelligence and all these things, over 50 because of neurobiological changes to really gain all the access to it. That's the hack in your fifties. If, and, and the point you, I'm wired like you, you know that like we're, I'm insanely curious. It doesn't go away. And childish, um, immature sense of humor. I mean, we're soul brothers, all those things. <laughs> very true. Dave. <laughs> very, very true. Um, and, uh, create, you want creativity. I mean, you, you, that's what you said. Like, how do you reboot it? Like, really? Start training yeah. up creativity in your fifties, and um, usually that's about. You know, I, I always tell people the easiest way to train creativity is to stop buying your culture. You can't buy culture anyways. You go to a restaurant, and a food. I love this with foodies. They go to a restaurant, they think they're having a cultural experience, and I'm like, the only person who's having a cultural experience are the people in the kitchen who are cooking the food. They're having yes. a cultural experience. You, on the other hand, on the outside, are buying your culture. Stop buying your culture. Start creating your own culture. That's what nurtures th- this in a really in a really deep way. Um, this is from the Upgrade Collective. Deborah. thank you. But I'm just going to read it directly because it's that good. What else can we do to age well besides smoke weed, jump off mountains, and forgive people? <laughs> She just, she summed up your life's work in that question. (laughs) What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. 
You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. This is from The Upgrade Collective. Deborah, thank you. But I'm just going to read it directly because it's that good. What else can we do to age well besides smoke weed, jump off mountains, and forgive people? <laughs> she just she summed up your life's work in that question. <laughs> um, reliable access to flow. Um, okay. is, you know, certainly matters over time. It, uh, um, so let's, let's just go back to the, the use it or lose it skills, right? It, so it's one yes. yeah, on the physical side, you, and you have to train, you can preserve significant amounts of strength, stamina, flexibility, agility, and balance long into life, but those are five different categories and they roughly need, they all sort of need to be trained simultaneously. You can put them together into certain activities, but you can't skimp on any of those. And uh, with things like uh, balance and agility, you have to, you have to be smart about it because as we age, we have prime mover muscles, our big, big, thick muscles, and we have stabilizer muscles. And right. What happens is the prime movers, we, whenever we have bodily injuries or whatever, when we're healing around that stuff, right, you, you heal, break your left foot ankle. And as you're healing, your right leg gets a little stronger. Your left leg learns to compensate for the injury. That doesn't tend to get fixed over time. It tends to, to magnify. And as a result, a lot of our prime movers take over and our stabilizers stop doing work. This is one of the reasons that falls increase 40, 50, 60%, you know, over 50, it's it's this issue. And, um, it's just about knowing how to train and, and being able to train, you know, all of, all of those things at once. So, um, that's what has to happen on, on the physical side, cognitive performance, you know, as, as we said at the beginning, lifelong learning is, is foundational to stave off cognitive decline if for no other reason, then expertise and wisdom are both like the, the two things that are actually neuroprotective against cognitive decline. And those are the skill sets you're, you're aiming for. So um, then we talked about all the gateways of adult development that you sort of need to pass through. Um, and then, you know, everybody's, we know this, right? And we, we there are like there are you know really basic lifestyle factors, right? Older adults who engage in challenging social and creative activities that produce feelings of mastery and control right. are the ones who thrive the most. And mastery and control are really actually key. Um, both of those feelings, those emotions, there's a lot of neuroimmunology work that show they both increase T cells and killer T cells or natural killer cells, right? So um, and this is one of the reasons flow matters over time. Uh, flow is, from a scientific perspective, one of the things that flow does, we, we now believe it's the evolutionary signal of mastery. I, it, it's the brain's way of saying, hey, you've mastered this thing. You've learned it because knowing when you're good at skills is, is important from an evolutionary mm-hmm. perspective. So one, you get that feeling of mastery directly from flow. And one of the core characteristics of flow is it produces a sense of control and these are usually important. I mean, even Ellen Langer, who I mentioned earlier, the queen of mindset, her very first her famous study on perceived control back in the 70s, right? This is one of the most famous. This is the, this is the study that blew, that changed everything we thought about 
aging. It was, she took a group of, she was hired to make life better for people in a retirement home. She took a group of 16 folks, divided them into two groups that both got the same interventions. They both got plants in their room, more movie time and more social time, Mm -hmm. right? And the difference was one group, they had to take care of their plants. They got to choose what movies they were going to watch and they got to choose when they were going to have more social time. The other group, the nurses took care of their plants and they got more movies, but the, the, they picked the group movie and they got more social time, but everybody, it was a Tuesday at four. And a year and a half later, uh, the group that had perceived control, because they didn't have a whole lot more control over their life, they just had a, this increase in perceived control. Every single health and you know metric you, you could possibly imagine was through the roof, but the craziest one was they were twice as likely to be alive. <laughs> that's the, that was the biggest difference. I truly think that's why we still have voting. Receive control. Uh, because it, it gives people the perception of having control, which makes them happier and longer lived, even though, let's face it, you have absolutely no control over whatever crackhead is running the White House right now or, or at any time in, in the past or the history. You actually have no control. <laughs> but the perception that you have control probably does something neurobiologically that's valuable for humans, which is why we keep This is very brave new world. This is very brave new world. We're going to give them Soma. Um, and, uh, uh, but you're not wrong. But uh, you, 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 you are certainly not wrong about that. And, and certainly for, for health and longevity, um, perceived control really, really, really matters and control really matters and flow because it, the feeling control is built into it. This is one of the reasons flow matters so much as we age. And I like a lot of people, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology, he really spent the bulk of his career focusing on questions of adult development and flow. That's in fact, the last paper he published before he died was on did flow proneness change over time? What changes, and you know this is a this is a moving target variable. If you look at the data, it's only when uh, bodies really start to break down, and you can no longer kind of do the same thing to get into flow, that it starts to taper off a little bit. So that changes, obviously. Like you go back twenty years ago, that was in people's seventies because that was when we tailed off, and now if you look at it, it's, it's late eighties. So like it keeps getting pushed out as we live longer and as we maintain health and vitality longer. So um, it doesn't seem to drop off at all. And Csikszentmihalyi argued in two or three of his books um, that flow is the actual engine of adult development, which I tend to agree wow, with. Wow, that's a big statement. But it's the because – well, this is what you – this is how you need to think about it. When we – so – Flow states have triggers. The most famous is the challenge skills balance, right? We get in them a flow when the, we're through focus and we pay the most attention to the focus to the task at hand when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set, right? So you want to stretch but not snap. When you're doing that, you're using your skills to the utmost. So when you get into flow, this is why flow amplifies. You're, you're, you're getting learning. You're getting growth. You're coming out the other end. You're a more complex and adaptable person. And flow also automatically expands perspective and empathy. So wisdom, so a lot, and, right? So a lot of the traits we associate with adult development are automatically expanded. I mean, this is, it happens because of, you know, how empathy and, and wisdom, a lot of that is in the temporal parietal junction and which gets really active and flow. And this is why we see things from other people's perspectives and why we become one with everything in extreme macro flow states. It's the same mechanism, right? Um, 
but all that happens in flow. I don't, with, with Chick sent me high statement, I, I tend to agree with them. I want to study it. Right. We've been trying to figure out, can we run better experiments and things like that? He, he came at it from a psychological standpoint and the psychology definitely holds up. Does it hold up neurobiologically? is an open question. And I'd like to do more work on that. And we're, we're thinking about it at the collective right now. I'd like to see the results of that as well. And all right, let's say that you're 90. Smoke weed, jump off mountains. What does a 90 year old do for flow? <laughs> like th there are slowing of brain cells in most people. So uh, like, what's the safe way to do this? Yeah, no, I mean, so it, let me tell you where this all started. This when I've been studying this stuff and you know, I mean, as you know, I do a, my, my work with Tuawas. We do a hospice care dog sanctuary and we've been massively successful at, at, at extending the lives of dogs. So one of the first things I started to realize when, when the quote unquote lifestyle factors caught my attention, it wasn't like I thought the blue zone research was particularly spectacular. It was that when I looked at the blue zone research and I looked at all the other lifestyle stuff, I realized we had done very similar things for the dogs and we were taking dogs with late stage heart disease and cancer and getting three to five more healthy active years based on sort of lifestyle interventions and no real extreme medical interventions. Cause when you have the volume of animals that we work with, you can't, there was no way to afford those kinds of medical interventions. Um, especially when we were starting up, right. we were getting crazy results of so that, right? It started with, holy shit, what's going on with our dogs? And is this even possible in humans? And I started looking in humans and I went, oh, wow, they've all, they've discovered very, very similar things. That said, right before COVID, it was the last, com so me, Hetchik sent me on Mike passed away in October of 2021. Um, and, uh, but I talked to him in, I want to say, July of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I called him up to ask him a funny question. I called him up because they had translated uh, one, he had had a stroke and I wanted to make sure he was okay. And two, they had translated a bunch of his work, uh, early interviews out of Italian and into English. And I was reading them and there was all this stuff about early Yosemite. I knew he was a rock climber and a mountaineer and sort of an outdoor athlete, but like there was, he was quoting like naming like hardcore Yosemite Valley rock climber names that I was like, oh, he would only know these people. He was really, really serious. So I called them up and I was sort of kidding him. And I said, Mike, you know, I know in your TED talk, you talk about you see, you know, stumbling upon flow in a concentration camp during World War II. And then your original work was on artists. But in between, you were a very serious rock climber. Mm -hmm. And tell me the truth. Were you getting into deep flow states out in the mountains and just didn't know how to talk about it with academics? So you started writing about it with artists. And there's this huge pause, like enormous, like 30 seconds go wow. by, a minute goes by, and I'm a I'm minute and a half. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, I've offended. Like, you know, this, this man who's a legend to me, holy crap, I've totally offended him. Wow. And suddenly he says, Stephen, you got to be careful. Oh. And at this point, I think to myself, holy shit, has he like lost the plot? What's he talking about? I got to be careful. Like, wow. And, and I'm like, well, Mike, what should I be careful about? He said, well, Stephen, you do something your entire life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing mountains. Some days I can barely get out of bed. You need a backup plan. You got to be careful. There you go. So, so, right, 
I, my primary flow activity is skiing. It's always been my primary flow activity. Up till before in our country, I was a big mountain skier. Yeah, you, which you're meant the man. only way I got into flow was charging down really big, gnarly, scary lines. Yeah. And I knew if that was my main source of flow as I aged, to something I was absolutely right, I'm screwed. Why did I start park skiing? That seems totally crazy, but I figured if I could get to intermediate, it was going to be dangerous going zero to intermediate. But at intermediate, you can sort of check your progression. You, there's much less randomness. There's less, and I would have all these millions of ways to creatively interpret the mountain. I wouldn't have to use risk as a flow trigger. I could use creativity uh. and creative and embodied movements and all these other things. So I would have a million more entrances <laughs> into flow over time. That was the entire in our country adventure. It was exactly where You're it came from. The only human being is like, you know, this bombing down these dangerous runs, it might be a problem. I'll just learn park skiing to be less risky. But like that, that's a uniquely Stephen Kotler thing to, to do. Um, for the rest of us, but you see the logic. I do see it. your logic, but the, for the rest of us mere mortals, uh, might I might I suggest sex as a way to get into flow that you can do as you age that you're less likely to be injured, even if you're very like park sex. Maybe I, I don't know what what you're into. But by the way, I'm also I'm gonna, I'm I'm also teaching myself how to play piano. Okay, that's a so, good flow or chess probably too, right? Park ski. Uh, I I haven't gone back to chess, but I will tell you what I am doing. What I have been doing. Um, I got so frustrated there's gaps in my math yep. and as you know in neuroscience you can't really have gaps in your math i got so frustrated i've gone all the way back i started with algebra one and i'm literally like working my way all the way through all because i was sick of it i was like you know what first of all this is good for my brain as i age and second of all i'm annoyed that there's something here i don't understand and i don't know and you know i was just, i was just tired of it so i, I you know chess maybe will be the next decade but these days it's been calculus so you're doing calculus for flow. You're you're like the weirdest jock nerd combination that's ever been made. You realize that, right? Well, I'm an artsy jock nerd. Okay, that that's a fair point. So a jock nerd with a ponytail, I I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're the one with the ponytail, um, jock I, nerd. I, I I I own it, although I'm probably not a jock. <laughs> Uh, I just like to to uh, I like to do the minimum necessary to look and feel like a jock uh, without having <laughs> to have the big ego. Uh, now uh, I'll be straightforward. I like going for hikes in the mountains. I like beauty. You know, I I like certain you know physical activities, but I don't want to go to the gym and practice dribbling soccer right now. It's just not very high in my list of how I could spend my time. Uh, so if I can acquire those skills or the physical results of those skills in one percent of the time. I'm going to do that, and I'll spend the rest of the time going into flow state in other ways that serve me. But I would. So here's here's the thing I want to. All that is true. All of that is right. Here's the, the point I make at the very end of the book, um, which is that action sports are actually anti-aging medicines in very specific ways. One is action sports, and I'm not telling people to learn to park ski. There's a billion action sports to choose from, but they all demand strength, stamina flexibility, agility, and balance. You get all the user to lose its skills yep. in one activity. You also, if you want to protect cognitive function, what do you want? You want neurogenesis. You want to birth new neurons and create new neural networks. That's how you're going to protect yep. against cognitive decline. 
most of the neurons in the adult brain that are born show up in the hippocampus, right? Even the very late in life, you're birthing 700 new neurons in the hippocampus a day, basically up to the point we die. Um, but what are those neurons? What does the hippocampus do? It, it does predominantly map making. That's grid cells and place cells. So if you really want to preserve cognitive function, you want to basically use the hippocampus in the way that evolution designed it. You want novel, challenging experiences in outdoor environments because that's the brain was designed in an evolutionary sense where hunter-gatherers for a very long time. Remember where you are when important shit happened, right? Like that's what our brain is yep. designed to do very much. So action sports by, I'm not saying you have to go out and learn how to park ski, but you want to go do your hikes outside in novel outdoor environments. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, they did a study. They didn't include action sports, which bummed me out, but they did a study, I want to say 10 years ago, about which sports have the best impact on longevity. Number one, tennis. Number two, badminton. Number three, soccer. Now, one thing that's worth pointing out, wow. all of those are social activities because when they get yep. to number four, it was – I was, cross country skiing and then running and there's, there's so there's a there's a list but that you get once you get to four they're all solo activities and we know that you know it's really important to have you know social connection later later in life so but they, and they didn't test action sports but i think there's you're definitely right about hand eye coordination right i tell the story in the beginning of the book of like or the end of the book of the mystery of stradivarius which is another one of those mysteries that i stumbled yeah. upon Right, like Stradivarius, Stradivarius made fifty percent of the rarest musical instruments in history. To the fact that I stumbled upon, which I was like, "Oh my god, that's bizarre!" One dude built half of the most valuable instruments in history. That's crazy. What other field has that ever happened in? And as I'm sort of researching that, sort of geeking out because I'm curious, I discovered that two of his most famous instruments were made when he was ninety-two years old. And um, like at that point, when I stumbled on that fact, I was still under the influence of the long, slow rot theory, right? This was the point I yep. was like, well, wait a minute. Like there is no possible way if fine motor coordination declines over time, if dexterity declines over time, manual dexterity declines over time. There's no way a 92-year-old dude makes, you know, a priceless viola. But that was when I started saying, hey, wait a minute. There's something really rotten with this information. Of course, Stradivarius made a thousand musical instruments over the course of his lifetime. He never stopped making them. So user lose its skills. Perfect example. There's a little more wisdom in Stradivarius as well, uh, because he all, he told everyone how he soaked his wood and did all this stuff. It was all bullshit that he was telling his competitors to throw them off how he did it, or that he didn't soak it, dry the wood, some sort of a thing. I don't remember the I exact I didn't know that. That's brilliant. It. That's and then they found out by looking at a shaving of one with an electron microscope, like, wait a minute, this thing's been soaked forever. I think it was he told him it was dry. So he basically misdirected everyone, which is part of wisdom. And then his mastery that happens from doing it over and over with those fine motor skills, it's like a surgeon who's done it for 20 years can do things that a new surgeon just can't do until they get the, that layering. And that, the overall reason I... I like your book. I, I like your approach on this is that I wouldn't be here with the, the brain and the biology I have now if I didn't out of desperation when I was about 25, 26, start hanging out with people three times my age um, who had were working on the anti-aging problem before it was, it was cool to do that because I was so profoundly sick and just, you know, fat and, and my brain wasn't working. But I, I realized I'm downloading all this information from 
uh, from the masters. And even now, uh, a lot of my guests on the show are you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, because I want their 40 or 50 years of work. And I want to be able to ask them any question and download it into my audience's brains and minds so we can maybe get the wisdom faster. And if we can make these people healthier with better working brains and maybe give them another 20 years, the wisdom is going to compound and compound and compound. And it does share down through the generations and the the people in their their 20s, which is, by the way, the the second largest cohort of people listening to the show um, is they're like, oh my God, I'm getting such an unfair advantage because I, I just got all this stuff. So I didn't have to go do it all. Like just what you shared about the stages of uh, development right there. If, if someone just picks that one nugget of wisdom from you and, and says, I'm just going to work on that for a year. You just saved them like 10 years of crap in their life. And we just have to get older people who kick ass. And that's kind of what you could have named your book if you didn't name it in our country, right? Old people kick ass. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, the other thing is this. I, you know, we do tons of work with CEOs. And if you talk, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've in hundreds of conversations with thousands of CEOs at this point. Everybody says the same thing. The two skill sets that are hardest, that I need the most in the 21st century, that are the hardest to train for or hire for are creativity and empathy. And creativity matters because you, the rate of change in the world is ridiculous. And if you're going to innovate and keep pace, you need it in your employees. And empathy, one, teamwork is at the heart of any good company. And without empathetic you know, team members, you've got no collaboration, got no cooperation. But also if, if Bezos is right and, you know, even you're right from back in the day, customer-centric thinking is the mantra of 21st century business. If, without empathetic employees, nobody's thinking like your customers, right? And a well-trained over 50-year-old is the ideal worker for the 21st century. Like you're talking about the dream workforce. So it's really interesting because it, it, there's, a, there's a business revolution sort of tucked inside all of this um, waiting to happen that's really exciting as well. Okay. I'm I'm 100% with you there. Uh, and so much can happen if we just get that dialed in for CEOs. It's a big part of, of my mission when I work with them as well, is let's just get those tuned in. But I'd also add working memory. There's a really high correlation between uh, working memory size and ability to run larger companies. And you, you kind of look as the... As you climb up through the executive ranks, uh, quite often the CEO and senior operating people in a company have a working memory that can store about 10 digits. And if you go down to the average of seven, that's your management level. And then people can only remember six, it goes down. So that ability to rapidly swap okay, things I'm in and out of your fascinated IO. by this. I want to see, I want to see the research on this. That's crazy. I didn't know that it makes a lot of sense to me. I also think one of the things I've always thought about working memory is if you, write, if you write books, for one example, if you do anything that requires you to hold tremendous amounts of information in your head all at once, and books or long-form articles, um, research, any of those kinds of projects tend to require that, right? You can't write a book. You can't write 250 pages if you can't hold 250 <laughs> pages. There's going to come a point yeah. when you have to start moving shit around, and it's in nobody's head but yours. Right. So like those kind of skills. So very, I think working memory in that way, exactly what you're talking about is actually um, it's trainable 
but most people don't challenge themselves. Most people have never even like tried to write like a 10,000 word article, um, which like a long form New Yorker style article. Um, but even that holding all that information and being able to like move it around. Um, and I do remember like, that's a, I, one of the reasons I know it's a trainable skill is because I remember the first handful of times I wrote like a 5,000 word article, my editor got in it, my face. It was very like, different. move it around, you know, to ask me for changes. And I was like, I couldn't even see the whole article that I had written. Yeah. You have to draw a picture. At least that's what I do of the entire book, uh, to be able to see what the book looks like. Uh, and then that means you can change how the image looks in your head. Otherwise, it, it, it's impossible. For the first book, it took me five years to write it in part because of that problem. Uh, and then, you know, I, I got the skill. But I, I want to ask you this. The articles, 3,000 plus words, you know, several pages, no one reads them anymore online. I write them and it's so down. It, is social media with your know, five bullet points while someone's dancing, is that making people older faster? I... That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't, so there, I'm sure there's all kinds of advantages in newer media cognitively that I'm not looking at here, but yeah, yeah. David, I think it, I it absolutely, I, I, I think I agree with that statement. Um, I've, for certainly, certainly what I've noticed over time is um, what has certainly been lost is uh, there's a, like now language has to be unbelievably boring and communicative. People have lost, there was a level of, you know, you said you were a cyberpunk, go back to like William Gibson's stuff from the eighties or the nineties. Oh, yeah. People can't read it today. It's too confusing. They can't follow that plot today, like literally, um, today. So like there's something, uh, there's like a richness in the storytelling that has gone away and like our ability to understand complicated metaphors and similes has gone away. I was rereading a lot of Annie Dillard's work recently. Um, and, uh, especially her book for the time being, which is absolutely beautiful. And I was thinking to myself how most of the book is a metaphor, right? I mean, it's an argument with God is the entire book is, is, is a lengthy argument that she's having with God, um, as a, like, from a scientific perspective and it's it's you if you were to write it today i don't think um i mean you know people consider it one of the great books of the 20th century i don't know if you could write it today well there's a lot of stuff like that where i'm not i think i think the it's not to say that there's cool stuff that has emerged out of like some of the social you can do stuff with language and technology that that's interesting but I think there's some levels of cognition that, that have been lost. I think they'll come back with, you know, with, with new things. But yeah, I think for now, I think you're probably right. But here's a question for you, Stephen. Flow yes, state in reading. Do you get into a flow state when you read? It's interesting. I, I always said one of the marks of knowing a subject, actually, is when you can get into a flow state while reading the textbooks. And that yes. was right. That was when I started wow. to like, when I started to get into flow while reading neuroscience textbooks, mm -hmm. uh, that was when I was like, okay, this is really like, I, I was like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting marker for like expertise. Oh, you know, and, uh, which, wow. um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I, I always say that like when you, you know, you're an expert when you're reading the textbooks and they read like adventure stories. 
By the way, mm-hmm. first actual adult development researcher in the world was Bernice uh, Newgarden, right? Uh, she, uh, in 50-something, she was awarded the University of Chicago gives her the, the, and gives her the first PhD in human development. She, her argument, she, so she's studying the question. She, she's exploded the idea of the empty nest syndrome and menopause as trauma and all these like old ideas. She exploded a bunch of them. But my favorite thing was she proposed the first theory of adult development based on uh, the social clock. So what she basically said is society says, this is the time to get a job. This is the time to get serious. This is the time to get married. This is the time to have kids. And you either on schedule or off schedule. And either way, there's a whole bunch of societal pressure that comes with being on schedule or being off schedule. And that's the actual engine of development. So I was, I was listening to you talk about, uh, about social pressure. And I was thinking that, um, Bernice made the argument that this is actually one one of the things that drives us, that ages us. Interesting. I, I believe it. The, the idea, if, if we could boil NAR country down into just one thing, it'd be really hard to do. But one of the, the things that you said first on the interview that I think comes through well in your book is just the idea of keeping your curiosity. Anytime someone says it's impossible, anytime someone says something, like, why? Like, like is that real? Is, is that true? What, what if? And just always having that going. And I, I've seen your work with the flow genome over the years. And you remember, I was like the very first investor in it, like in what, 2013 or something? Way back. Um, and like, I, I, I just see good stuff happening, but it, it requires continuous curiosity sometimes for 10 years or 20 years. And if we can help our current eight second attention span, TikTok addicted friends of all ages, turn curiosity back on, I think it's going to make the world a better place. Oh, and we'll have less, we'll have less decrepit people. Certainly. A, you're going to have less decrepit people and B, like curiosity is a weapon for success. Mm -hmm. It's a weapon for success. And I will say like, I don't, I don't know if I can make this as a blanket statement, but I know very, 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 very few super successful people who do not have a burning curiosity still like endless. Right. Um, And I think, um, it's such it's such an important driver, um, all throughout throughout our lifetime. Well, let me ask you this before we wind up the interview because we're over time. What's different about you that let you keep it? Was it your was it your parenting? Was it your schools? Are you just stubborn? What what, what let you do it? So you have to. Everything about me as an adult from age at least 15 to say 35, that 20 year span, a lot of it is spent trying to solve a fundamental puzzle, which is how do you get paid to write? I knew (laughs) I wanted to be a writer from the time I was four, right? And by the time I was 15, 16, I realized that like I wasn't, I didn't fit very easily into nice molds for society. I didn't slot well, um, and that this was going to be a challenge and I didn't want to be poor. And most writers 
ended up poor. So like, mm -hmm. not only did I want to make a living as a writer, I wanted to make a good living as a writer. And so one of the first things I figured out when I started working as a journalist is journalism is about exploiting your curiosity. Anything that you know, sort of a little bit more about than, than other people, you know, than my, than my contemporaries, right. Um, was an advantage. So like cultivating curiosity, uh, was how I made a living, right. For, a, especially as a right. journalist, right. Like, so, and it just, it, by the, and by the time I had solved that puzzle, I, you know, then I was writing books, which obviously, you know, you, you still need that arm running a research Institute. So, you know, all those things still require curiosity. It's it just continued to feed itself. But in the beginning, it was, it was a solution to and my mother. We didn't have a ton of money when I was born, right? My mom, we, and was, my parents were young and without a lot of money. My mom knew that books were good. So we would go to the library and she'd get me 50 books and read them to me or until I could read them to her. And then even when I was growing up, um, if I was curious about stuff, she found ways to let me indulge in it one way or another, even if we couldn't afford it, she would find ways to like, to make it possible for me, um, to indulge those kinds of things. So like, I, you know, I was raised a lot, like my mom's secret to parenting was cultivate curiosity in, in the kid. It'll keep him busy kind of thing, you know? So I think it's been with me all, all along, right. but, um, it was definitely, you know, it was a weapon in terms of writing stuff for me. So it was the desire to get paid doing what you love that helped to drive it. Um, I'm always intrigued to get a chance to pick your brain. I love it that we're going to be on the New York Times list together. Assuming listeners help out, guys, NAR country and smarter, not harder. Buy them together. You're going to read them both. And... You're not going to read the same thing in either one, but they're both going to help you get there faster, which is cool. And I got to say, uh, your uh, your abilities as a writer stand out. I, I like to think I'm you know, better than average um, with you know four New York Times bestsellers and whatnot. Um, but your storytelling is fucking legit. Like just author to author. Um, I every time we're like, God, how did he do that? So I'm 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 helping myself improve when I read your books to figure out how you're getting there. So that's just a genuine compliment. No ask getting there. Good skills. Thank man. you. I appreciate that. That's very sweet of you to say. You're listening to the Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.